0: the FS Ag Roundtable. We are at the Patent Block Building, the historic Patent Block Building in downtown Monmouth again for our second of two Ag Roundtables for this fall as we get ready for harvest season. Our partners include Growmark FF, Midwest Bank, Big River Resources, Elliott Brothers Seed Company, Monmouth College, OSF, Holy Family Healthcare, the Warren Henderson Farm Bureau, Compeer Financial, Hertz Ag Management, and A. Eugene Miller Agency. We've got a great discussion lined up. And a special guest who came over to see us from RFD Radio is Mr. DeLoss Yankee. Welcome, DeLoss.
1: Thank you very much. Always glad to be here. I always appreciate the invitation. And uh, just salute radio stations like yours that, A, focus on local, and if you're going to be intentional about being local here, you have to be focused on agriculture. And uh, certainly appreciate uh, the attention and the support that you give agriculture and, and certainly all the area farmers. So uh, always glad to partner with
0: you. Right back at you, DeVos. And uh, you guys are serving nearly how many affiliates now? I know we've been an affiliate for as long as I can remember. Yeah.
1: It's around 80, low 80s. Yeah, there's uh, about 60 stations to carry RFD Illinois every weekday morning. I had someone yesterday tell me, that she knows when she hears me on the radio, she knows how she's doing on her way to work. Like, when she hears me, she's either like, uh-oh, I'm running late, or she's, she's on time or she's ahead. You know, people use that as, a, as an interesting benchmark.
0: <laughs> well, it's a good benchmark. Thanks for being here, DeLon. Okay, also with us this morning is Brendan Marshall with SS. Brendan, welcome back to the program.
2: Uh, thank you, Vanessa. I've been looking forward to this, and it was a great conversation yesterday, and I'm sure today will be just as good.
0: Okay. Thank you so much. To my right is Chris Gavin with Midwest Bank. Good morning, Chris.
2: Good morning, Vanessa.
0: Did you have a nice
3: breakfast? Was great. Yeah. Breakfast is good. I think the whole program is awesome. So another another successful and a, and a great tradition. It's a great tradition. look forward to
4: it every year.
0: Okay. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Ron Moore with us, past uh, president of the American uh, uh, Soybean Association. Local farmer, welcome back.
4: Well, thank you, Vanessa. I enjoy coming to these round tables all the time and uh, we learn more here than uh, we we uh, we think we know everything, but when you come to these, you learn something new every time.
0: Well, we're going to learn a lot today. We've got a great uh, uh, group of uh, topics to talk about. Appreciate you being here, Ron. Elliot with us as well, Elliot Brothers Seed Company. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you for the opportunity, Vanessa, to kind of participate, be part of this. Uh, hey, uh, I, I would say you had a good breakfast this morning, great job by your speakers, and Certainly, the legislative folks did a, did a nice job as well, so certainly good for the community and really glad to know that Delos has value beyond just being a, a pretty face and smiling
0: <laughs> voice. So, yeah. <laughs> Thank you very, very much, <laughs> Rob. <great> <laughs> also with us, David Zimmerman with Big River Resources. Thank you for being here.
5: Thanks, so Great to be here again. Um, really looking forward to the discussion today. I see some familiar faces around the table. We definitely don't have any shortage of topics. Uh, a lot going on in the ag world right now, so I'm, I'm looking forward to it.
0: Thank you. There is a lot to talk about. Um, our legislators are here as well. And I heard the most interesting use of a term that I had only known in baseball. It was called PO, pitcher only, right? Well, they were talking about politician only. And it made me think of how great and lucky we are, uh, no matter who's been elected. Mike, you're new with us in this district. Uh, and, and Neil Anderson in our district—it's uh, just so nice. You guys always come to the breakfast. You always, when you get a chance, come and talk to our young people. Come to the roundtables. You're not just politicians only. You're all about agriculture and about your constituents. So I'll start with Senator Neil Anderson. Thank you for being here and not being a politician only.
6: <laughs> Thanks, Vanessa. No, this is uh, this is always great to come to. Um, really learn a lot. And you know, our job is, as legislators is to is to listen and. Um, You know, we can't be experts on every topic, and when it comes to the largest economic driver in our state, uh, which is agriculture and ag business, um, listening to the people that are involved in it uh, day in and day out um, really gives us uh, not only a good perspective, but it gives us things that we can take back to Springfield when we are um, negotiating on policy that's going to affect all of us.
0: Okay. Thank you. Senator Mike Halpin? Welcome. Uh,
7: Thanks so much. Uh, glad to be back for another round table and I, I'd have to say that um, attending these type of things should be expected of the el- elected officials um, and I will look forward to the day when it's not a surprise that room full of constituents uh, you know, see, a, see an elected official there. Um, I, I don't know that it happens all around the state, but I'm glad to see that my colleagues here in Western Illinois understand the importance. So. Looking forward to going through these topics with everyone and uh, ready and willing to step in and help however we can.
0: Okay. Representative Dan Swanson, welcome back.
7: Thank you, Vanessa. And what a great breakfast has already been highlighted. And uh,
4: boy, the city of Monmouth looks great this weekend. Having been in the parade Thursday night, the turnout for the parade, going over to the carnival, the turnover, the turnout at the carnival. It's just great to see rural America, small town USA coming together and, and uh having a great weekend, and, uh, and, and honoring agriculture in the way that uh, we do during this beef festival. So thank you, and glad to be here.
0: And uh, Representative Noreen Hammond, welcome.
8: Good morning, Vanessa. Great to be here. Thank you again for the invitation. I can't believe we're here uh, almost at, at harvest time. I, I, I don't know where summer went, but when you look out on the fields, of course, we can see that time is getting closer, and Um, I know folks like Jake are getting very anxious, and and, uh, um, hopefully we're going to have a a robust harvest season. But um, I can't tell you enough how um, important these opportunities are for us because um, it's a great learning experience for us, and I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Okay.
0: And also with us, Thad Darp. He is with the Illinois Beef Association and Tri-County Cattlemen. Welcome, Thad.
8: Thank you
1: very much for having me. I'm either the thorn between the roses or the roses between the thorns, surrounded by all the politicians here. But, yeah, thanks for having me, and I'm looking forward to a good discussion.
0: Okay. And also with us, Jake Armstrong, president with the Warren Henderson Farm Bureau. Thank you for partnering with us as well today. No
9: problem. Um, As Ron said, I always come away from these things more intelligence. Uh, I'm just here to learn and here to add a little bit if I can.
0: Okay. Thank you. All right, Golov, you want to take us through topic number one with our crop prospects and expectations, sir?
1: Yeah, I was going to say, who do we talk to first? Well, as a sponsor, we should talk to our FS agronomist, Brendan. What do you see so far, and have there been any combines? Yeah.
6: So there's been a little
2: silage chopped, um, and and it's coming out pretty good from what I've Talked to two growers that have done it. They haven't done any yield checks, but, you know, there's a significant amount of corn. Um, Yesterday afternoon, I was able to go on a little crop tour. We started here in Monmouth, um, went as far south as Adair, Illinois, and we went east, Ipeva, and then came up just south of Knoxville looking at various corn plots in different fields. Um, Monmouth's in a very good area right now. I mean, compared to the other three we were at, they probably had a little significant less rainfall to the south. Um, corn's turning pretty rapidly down in that area. And soybeans, uh, you get over east toward the Ipaver area, same way as there. And then up by Knoxville is a little better. The crop is good. It's not great. Not
1: great. But,
2: but it's good. I mean, I think that by all aspects right now, I, I would say average. But what I do highly encourage anybody is to go out and start squeezing some stocks, pushing against them. There's a lot of anthracnose, a lot of crown rot. Um, coming in the corn, and uh, some sudden death in the beans, but I would get out and check.
1: So that might determine where we go, where our Might want to start,
2: start a little earlier, and I think harvest when it gets started, it's going to go fast, and just, in my opinion, things are starting to dry.
1: Yeah. Were there yield estimates by chance? We did or? not do okay. yield
8: estimates. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I've heard so many folks, even in Champaign County, in one of those garden spot areas, that they said that, that just walking a row is remarkably inconsistent. Where you're like, that's a good ear, and then two down, you're like, boy, that's that's not a good ear at all. Yeah, yeah no, I fully uh, agree. Uh, Brennan talked about kind of location variance, but to your point, I think you'll see variance within a field, and certainly each of us from one field to another. You know, when it when it rained, you'd get two tenths one place and an inch and two tenths somewhere else, ten miles down the road. So. I think probably as well the dryness early kind of slowed us down just a hair and kind of delayed that maturation process. So I think they'll get going before terribly long, but a lot of things probably won't start in earnest until October. Yeah. Ron, Gibb, south here similar situation?
4: Yeah, we okay. we feel the same way that Brendan does. We've got a farm south of Roseville. that doesn't look as good as a farm we have north of Roseville. Um, my expectations are going to be just a touch, yields are going to be just a touch below our average production history. Um, it's going to be a good crop, but it's not going to be uh, one that we're going to brag about in 10 years. Representative Swanson, do you have similar up north of here? Yeah, so one of the things I'm sure, it's not just a regional thing, but we had beans sitting in the ground since the end of May, to the first part of June when they were planted, and laid in dry dirt until early July. We have a lot of beans in places that are way behind other beans in that same field. And same way with corn. A lot of corn with the heat, which did not tassel as quick as the other corn within a field on side hill. And then we got rain and all of a sudden that corn's tasseling. So I think not only are we gonna see the different size of the beard, we're gonna see a lot of difference in moisture, I believe, going through field two between what, what uh, has matured a lot later whether it's corn or the beans. So another challenge for all of us, but uh, um,
1: see how it goes. We had country in the studio at the end of June, and the message was you better make sure you have your acres accounted for in case this crop did not turn out. You know, we were getting felt close to a, a widespread failure, and then it rained a couple of days at the end of June, and, and things, things were better. I mean, was it that dire up here, Brennan?
2: Yeah, I mean... You know, we were a week away from things looking really, really, you know, tough. And then we get rain. And then, you know, we got, I mean, there were some areas to get two, three inches of rain and one or four, but then two weeks later, you're back in the same spot because we were just so far behind. Um, But I think what's probably hurt some of us the most, and maybe on the soybeans, the fact that soybeans can put on a lot of weight in August, and we didn't have a tremendous amount of rain in August. And so, uh, some beans, I think, are starting to turn a little. A little quicker than they should, or
1: just flat out dying on hillsides and things like that. Do you have of rain? Like early August, and then nothing, or not much after that? Bob
2: you could help me with this. Why? One. I would say it was towards the end of July there, right first of August. We had a we had a week there when there was a couple two three inches. I was actually I was on vacation, that's why I was kind of reaching out for a little help on that one. I just remember that, that looking back on climate things like that.
1: Bad? You have fall crops? Yeah, I've got some row crops. Um, I'm unique to work uh, with Land O'Lakes Finance. So actually yesterday I was talking with some guys in Western Iowa and Southern South Dakota and their insurance adjuster had been out there uh, after chopping silage and what typically, now this is what I was told, so take it for any farmer at a coffee shop, you know, but uh, typically a 200 bushel area was 120 uh, behind the chopper. So I think Ron, I agree with Ron for what little agronomy background I've got. we're going to be okay, but there's a lot of places. And and the the other part of that conversation was within 20 miles, there was 225 bushel silage. So it's just it doesn't it doesn't take very far uh, for it to be really different. But it, there's going to be some zeros on the report card. One thing I remember from earlier in the year, I don't know if it affected you necessarily, but you know, we were so cool for so long, like in April, and then it got warm. But it, it really didn't allow that hay crop grow like a lot of people yeah. early were like I'm only getting half my bales or two-thirds of my bales so the, the hay crop wasn't off to a good start either yeah hay is short um you know they release crp in some several counties throughout the state I know there's a lot of crp ground that got put up um you know the feed quality in that is is what it is we're thankful that big rivers over there to give us some gluten and make that stretch but you know, that's better than a snowball, is what my grandpa always said, you know, that, that CRP is not much, but it's better than a snowball. So, but uh, for the most part, we are short on hay in this area. Have you ever heard that before, better than a snowball?
4: Well, my my comment is they either eat the hay that I give them or concrete, one or the other. <laughs> and so they'll eat the hay that I give them. And we bailed some CRP ground. So one of the things that, you know, Dad and I raised cattle, but... Two of my pastures are the cattle drink out of the creek, and we, one of them dried up right after we moved the cattle off, mm-hmm. and the other one dried up while they were there, and we finally got them moved where we could bring them back home to drink out of well water. So the summer has been a challenge, and row crops has been a challenge in the livestock producers as well because of the dry weather and the heat.
1: Did you move the first ones? At a normal time, or did that accelerate when you had it to It was a
4: ground? couple of weeks before we normally bring them off a of pasture. We try to bring them off right before we start going to the field and doing harvest, because nobody likes to stop around the combine and chase cattle out of the neighbor's corn. <laughs>
1: well, I remember, you know, Fairview had a huge run, you know, sale barns in Illinois only do a feeder special once a month, summertime. Uh, now they're back to every other week, but you know, they had huge runs in June, because people didn't know if there was by the next month special, is there going to be grass, is are going to be water? So there was a lot moved early, just uh, not a concern for that. What about our end users then? Like, Jake, when you hear these kind of things, you know, what your expectations on how to fill the bins? You know, what does this mean to you?
9: Yeah, so I'm just at the mercy of what gets brought in. Um, what's unusual for us this year, we typically are about 20, 20% bought ahead which I would say is low compared to most elevators in Illinois, but we're only 5% bought ahead right now. So it's not just um, short bushels, short waters. I think people are not happy with pricing. Um, they're just unsure about this market altogether. Uh, we had a grower bring in some ears the other day at 27%, and he's notorious for picking at 34 So I'm just here waiting for a phone call that we're getting grain any day now. But uh, it'll, be, it'll be an interesting fall, that's for sure. I agree with all the variability in the room. Um, I'm looking for quality. I'm looking for a lighter test weight this year, which just the growing year we had. Uh, so it'll be a challenge on our end, but um, it's a challenge I'm happy to face.
1: Yeah, Rob, why didn't you sell when it was 629 in June? But <laughs> we, did, we didn't know we had a crop in So, you know, what, what are you going to put on the book? gentleman asked me for marketing advice. Uh, yesterday, and I said I got it works every time. Just sell high. <laughs> <laughs> David, what do you think is an end user? Um,
5: we're we're actually pretty pleased with what we're seeing now. We are we're just on the cusp of this thing. We have dumped some new crop corn in our our West Burlington facility. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're very happy with all of our draws right now, and it has it has certainly been just in time weather this year. Um, but. Our local farmers are going to do it again for us, and and if you look back to last year, the difference between this year and last year is that western crop, the western corn belt, was, was really tough last year. They've got a crop this year. Um, it's not going to be a bin buster, but really, you know, we talk about pricing, and we are. We're a dollar lower than we were last fall, and. Somehow or other, you know, the U.S. farmer, this is still going to be probably the third largest total corn crop harvested, at least. We'll see what, what, what the USDA gives us next week on the wazi, but we're going to be close to 15 billion bushels, which would be the, the, the third or fourth largest um, at this point in time. So there, that's the reason why you're seeing this dollar difference in, in, in the price is, you know, from, from a carryout perspective, you know, we're looking at 2.2 billion bushels. For this upcoming crop year versus 1.5 last year, so our supply is, uh, has 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 grown somewhat. Now certainly demand has been a big part of that. Uh, we've seen our export demand just fizzle. Um, some of it's been supplanted by the Brazilians, of course, with who are having excellent crops down there. Um, but but all in all, it's it's uh, we're excited about the crop we're going to have locally, whether it's Wisconsin or. or, or Um, northeast Iowa, or southeast Iowa, or even western Illinois, we think we're going to be good.
0: Uh, Yesterday, that was mentioned quite a bit. It was a pretty heavy topic, was the Brazilian and Argentinian corn because uh, China, that was their choice. It seemed like this year um, and it was the first year. sounded like soybeans, they had done that before. Ron, is that correct? had has been the the number one producer.
4: Yeah. Um, First time I was in Brazil was 1998 and The group I was with, uh, we didn't think they could outproduce the United States in our lifetime. It was five short years that they produced more soybeans in Brazil than we did in the United States. And
0: And is part part of that because they can do it three times a year versus us planting once?
4: Yeah, you can get at least two crops a year. Uh, Sometimes some places can get two and a half, uh, but they... What I learned was that they're not our competitors as much as our colleagues Mm -hmm. because if you take out the Brazilian soybean crop, how much is the feed going to be for our hog producers and poultry producers? Uh, They'll they'll be cost prohibitive to do that. So we need, now there's a supply, an oversupply it looks like right now, but we need all the grain we can produce in the world
1: because there's places that need it. Sure. So I think part of that for South America is adoption of technology and improvement in genetics that we here in this country probably don't really have a good enough appreciation for, honestly. South America is is now exceeding the US in corn export. So they're catching up, which makes things like was talked about this morning, the, the importance of those locks and dams in our infrastructure. For us to be able to compete with folks that we had, used to have a significant advantage over, but but that gap is quickly being made up. So. Fred Bilo at uh, University of Illinois, plant physiologist, he has, for years he's had the six secrets to soybean success, and he also had seven steps. It used to be the 270 bushel corn, now it's the 300 bushel corn. I talked to him this summer, and he said, that for Farm Progress show, he said he had folks from Brazil, or he had South American people calling him regularly you know, wanted to meet with them when they when they came at, uh, to the show. So, you know, they're, they're certainly paying attention on how to, uh, to keep getting bigger. She sure. had with, a bus. With land and with the crops that are on that plane. We, we actually had a busload of 50 South Americans uh, visit here a couple, three weeks ago. And uh, that was a 300,000 acre family farm. They were all Japanese who had left as refugee status in the 30s and their family located in, in Brazil. And, uh, but to your point, they were here. They're looking to learn our secrets and do better.
0: Okay. Anything else on crop uh, expectations you'd like to cover the
1: law? I, I, well, uh, it is it is remarkable. We're going to have a report on Tuesday that's going to give some numbers. I also wonder if they're going to mess with the Anchorage numbers at all it might say even more corn or even more land for soybeans and that could that could impact the balance sheet quite a bit i i feel like they're not going down especially for corn i don't think it's going down whether it goes up you know that could that could make things even tighter
0: okay uh next topic inflation reduction act on biofuel. uh this was one rob that you, you uh shared with me we, we should discuss go ahead and, and take us down that road please
1: well the experts sit to my left on this one so i won't try to To uh, get into his thunder too far, but but certainly with this Inflation Reduction Act, there's an opportunity for the biofuel sector to to be a winner, and I think they're they're looking real hard at how they can uh, participate with this full carbon intensity reduction. And uh, and and I guess from a farmer perspective, and uh, and also a business dealing with farmers, we're trying to figure out how can we help. Folks, be a player uh, to to go along with that carbon intensity reduction. So I probably got to defer to David Zimmerman to uh, to give us really specific details. Yeah, I'd be happy
5: to. And, and Rob's Rob's in tune with this as well. But the the bill was actually you've heard it called a game changer, and that's true. Um, you know, we've talked this morning about uh, at the breakfast we were talking about incentives for farmers to plant uh, cover crops or no-till, and those are voluntary carbon credits that farmers certainly have access to today. But what the Inflation Reduction Act does is it it, it changes the game in that it does incentivize a bioprocessing facility such as ours to actually lower their carbon footprint. Um, so the incentives, and just to give you an example of what I'm talking about, if you take a, a facility like our Galva, facility, it has a CI score of 55 today. Now, we pledged as an industry to get to net zero by 2050. Um, you know, we'll talk about carbon sequestration, I think, uh, ultimately here, but if you look at that 55 score, we can get down, we can take 30 points off with carbon sequestration. Um, the balance of it realistically is probably gonna come from our feedstocks. When you do a life cycle analysis of a bioprocessing facility, everything from soup to nuts is counted um, and that includes feedstock. Now we don't have that official guidance from the treasury yet, but we do hope that it's gonna be granular and that it goes all the way down to the farm level and it can give a farmer incentive, obviously through this act and through the tax reductions and tax incentives that the, the bioprocessing facility can can receive and we can distribute that out into the farm community. Um, the last 15 to 20 points really need to come from our CI score and, and that's where we see the farmer getting involved.
0: Okay. Ron, can you handle the soybean side for us, please?
4: Yeah, I think you heard a lot of conversation about uh, renewable diesel, uh, which is can be soybean oil as a feed stock. Regular biodiesel should become renewable diesel has to go through another process, which is more expensive and and it's it's another opportunity to add value to the soybeans and the corn and and you talk about sustainable aviation fuel, which that is something else that's coming down the the pipeline um, in the future. It's all positive for for what we grow here in, in Illinois as soybean and corn farmers. Um, but it yet to yet to be realized, and the the unfortunate thing that I see it in all this is they're all dependent upon what happens in Washington D.C. and that's very unpredictable. And so we hope that Treasury comes up with favorable regulations, but I'm skeptical that they will.
5: That will the uncertainty is a problem. We talked about that this morning, yeah. and it's it, it's a very big problem when you're trying to make a five-year plan.
1: One of the things I might might throw in there that, that is troublesome to, to the points that have just been made is currently, if, if I'm not mistaken, Dave, you tell me if I'm wrong here, but uh, the, the current administration and EPA are leaning towards a European model of energy counting or carbon intensity counting, if you will, whereas I, I think most people in the... Uh, the biofuels arena, or corn, or, or soybeans, or whatever, are proponents of using what's called the GREET model, G R E E T, and uh, we've talked about it before here. But there's a gentleman, Dr. Michael Wang, who is kind of the uh, has developed the gold standard for that carbon intensity accounting. He works out of a Department of Energy lab uh, up in the Chicago suburbs, up not far Burr Ridge or somewhere right off there at Argonne National Lab, that uh, he is the gold standard for being up-to-date, whereas some of these European models are way behind. We're using 1950s agriculture, those kind of things, which put us in a bad light. And as a result, what happens is the uh, our, our ethanol, if you will, or corn, uh, is... is uh, they, they would say, you know what, it's not as sustainable as Brazilian because they they use a different different model, let's say. So you've got the worldwide folks or even folks in California that would rather buy Brazilian ethanol than they would U.S. because of those models that are so outdated. So we we got some troublesome things ahead of us, really.
0: Yeah, we talked about California yesterday. One percent of hogs are, are grown or there's one percent of pig farmers in California. However, with Proposition 12, the IPPA was here yesterday, uh, they're making a decision with that ballot initiative that affects 49 states and their farmers. So that is, that is. I, so I believe it when you say that California might buy Brazilian corn. Chris, what do you think from the banking perspective?
3: <coughs> well, I think Ron is throwing the bankers under the bus when he's talking about the Treasury, but, you know, <laughs> <that's the> <laughs> Now, uh, wow, I mean, I think it's just uh, very, very interesting how much um, is it, what's at play right now, what's at stake right now? There's just so much at stake, you heard it at breakfast morning, you're hearing it right now. So it sounds like the next six months or year are going to be really, really critical. And certainly the message was talking about, you know, when you have all this uncertainty, what do you do? Um, and uh that's that's a big problem as bankers we we certainly like to develop plans that we can halfway count on but uh yeah so that's that's a big issue and and uh jake i appreciate your comment about only five percent of the crop being sold uh, so that's that's another very interesting thing so one thing i want to squeeze in here vanessa it kind of goes back to the last topic but i'll, I'll squeeze it in so we uh We've been tracking, and I report on this in past roundtables. We've been tracking. We've got about 80 producers. We track uh, um, on corn and soybean production, and so globally on, that, on those 80 producers, uh, the break-even that we have on corn right now is 467 a bushel. That's 45,000 acres accounted for there with a, a yield projection of 213. So, uh, as we speak, as at as, as today, um, at 467 would give a negative $28 net income per acre. On the soybean side, um, break even is $11.59 um, at 63 bushel, uh, and that's uh, a profit of $92. An acre. So the, the economics have changed a lot over this, this year, and when people didn't sell, right, and when people didn't take advantage of those prices early on in summer, um, you know, we that's had a huge impact on on this model that we run. So, uh, yeah, I think hopefully these markets will, you know, we'll we, get some energy in and, and come back a little bit. But as we sit today, uh, certainly uh, it's not not going to be the kind of year economically that we
1: had last year.
0: Pat, your commentary on this subject?
1: Yeah, so I'm a banker too, but uh, I uh, at breakfast this morning, uh, the gentleman from the Corn Association was talking about uh, demand deterioration through uh, the legislation and, and ethanol. And my thought on that was, uh, you know, we, but we all know that that's going to deteriorate the corn market hard. Um, and going into that for the next 10 years or, you know, whatever time frame that is, cash flows are tight already. Um, so with that demand deterioration looming, coming down the pipe, a guy's really got to focus on efficiencies and uh, a 4.67 break even. You know, I think back to last fall we prepaid anhydrous probably 11 and a quarter. I know some guys prepaid some anhydrous this fall, 5 and a quarter, 6 and a quarter. Yeah, so and my my estimation of that is there's some anhydrous economists in the back room somewhere that think the next 12 months is going to be pretty rough. Now, whether that, you know, truth to that, I don't know, but... Uh, Somebody's forecast models are looking down the road saying, we can't be charging, you know, where's the spread at? So, um, as far as my portfolio and my guys I work with, I'm predominantly livestock. Um, I've got several grain operations and I've been working with them, talking about cost production and, and knowing your cost of production and figuring out where your inefficiencies are because the lean... You know, making hay last year while we could, uh, you, you better have some of that saved back because the market will take some of it away from you in the next three years. So,
0: And the sustainable aviation fuel is really, it's making headlines in other industries, not just in the agriculture industry. I'm sure you're hearing a lot about it too, DeLoss.
1: Yeah, I wanted to ask Ron about that of how do we make sure that we can have production somewhat flow as the demand, you know, as the demand for this grows, can we provide products so that we don't lose our chance or that we don't, you know, get, get chosen, you know, something else get chosen instead, you know, how do how do you build that the way that, that you know, the industry would want it to be built?
4: so my recollection is when we first, sustainable aviation fuel first became a topic of discussion, many of the large soybean processing company said we're gonna build a plant specifically to process soybean oil into sustainable aviation fuel. Um, I, most of those plants weren't gonna come online until 2026 from what I've been hearing and reading. So when you have 83 million acres of soybeans this year, there isn't that big pull right now for soybeans Increase soybean production here in the United States. I think it will come, but it's going to come because the market is working the way markets should. There's demand; people will build building or build processing plants. What I am worried about is that if you have government policies that artificially create demand that isn't there yet then we're going to fall short of producing enough soybeans to meet the demand. I think once you get the airline industry convinced that they can lower their carbon score by using sustainable or uh, yeah, sustainable aviation fuel, I think your, your demand will come. Uh, but it's got to come naturally instead of artificially, in my opinion. What do
0: we have two airlines, David, so far in the last year have committed to the future of using?
5: sustainable aviation fuel? Yeah, some have committed with with actual dollars and others have committed verbally. Um, but this is this is an interesting topic in that we mentioned the the potential demand destruction on corn um, by, you know, ethanol losing market share in 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 on road fuels. So SAF, you know, the grand challenge that has been put forth by this administration is three billion gallons by twenty thirty. And then uh, 30, 30 to 35 billion gallons by 2050. It's a huge market. It's it's more than you know, ethanol or soybean oil or cellulosic can supply all on its own. Um, but Ron's correct. I mean, the policies here are going to be critical. Rob mentions the Greet model. If the Greet model is not utilized in this in this bill, um, corn ethanol will be excluded. Uh, we will not be able to be a participant in it. And that's the push-pull that's going on right now. You've got, the, you've got a European-style attitude that says we don't want food crops, which is not a food crop in my, in my mind, that say we don't want food crops um, to, be, to be a part of this, essentially. Well, we've been down this cellulosic road before with ethanol, and it's, it's a rabbit hole. And, you know, our messaging is, has been if you want this done and you want it done right, then, then allow the bioprocessing industry to participate and give us tools to participate, and and we'll get you a big portion of that. Um, but if if you're going to put if you're going to put barriers up um, based on political ideology, then it's probably not going to happen.
0: Well, and I agree. I mean, that's like saying the beef industry. McDonald's says, "Hey, we're going to sell you know three billion more burgers, please, by all means, cattle producers, let's go." Uh, do you ever feel, you've been with Big River quite a while and doing these ag roundtables, it seems like ethanol or biofuels, it seems like it's a one-legged duck swim in a circle because you're always there to provide the product, the policy, sometimes leaves you out.
5: Well, and, and oh, allow me to get on my soapbox for just a minute, but um, I mean this industry at 20 years old has been, has been adding value to the agriculture communities for 20 years. You've got a bio. Uh, you've got a carbon economy that is developing. It's coming. It's developing. Our customers want it, whether they're international customers or even local customers. They want low carbon fuel. Um, the The carbon portion of that that these farmers uh, collect every fall has value now. Um, allow the ethanol industry and the bioprocessing industry to. to to collect that value and distribute it just like we've done for the last 20 years, and it will be done correctly, and it it will be a boon to to, uh, Midwest agriculture.
1: Well, as he mentioned earlier, the the ideology of some of the political nature of what we're going through, and Chris talked about businesses operate on certainty. So without certainty, people don't invest massive amounts of money to support what could or may not you know, transpire and come into fruition. So uh, the the other piece of it is, I, I mean, there's a big challenge out to the ag industry. Can you, right now they're asking, well, can you raise enough in sustainable aviation fuel or renewable diesel or those kind of things? Uh, they could wind up being our savior in this whole electric debacle that we're currently being shoved into, whether we like it or not. And Probably this whole, not probably this, what's called the National Highway Transportation Safety Board ruling that just came off uh, the heels of the, uh, old, what they call the tailpipe rule from EPA, we're, we're getting shoved down that rabbit hole that he talked about. So h- how do we avoid uh, the the train wrecks that, that some would like to put us up against? So,
0: Representative Dan Swanson?
1: And I, I want to
4: key off there is, as you mentioned, the the 2032 Forrest Auto that we talked about earlier and 67% of those sales uh, must be electric vehicles and 47% of those must be pickup trucks. Electric trucks. I like to think of a secure nation where we're relying on American products, American ingenuity we start talking about electrical vehicles, we start talking about an infrastructure that could be fractured quite quickly, where we don't have the ability to provide the energy to those 67% of our vehicles in sitting in our driveways. And by the way, where are the products coming for for the batteries in those vehicles? Um, we're going to rely on countries that we're not friendly to, and we're going to say, hey, sell us some more of your stuff. Well, I'll sell you more of your stuff. you're going to pay for it. And you know, so we're really not looking out for the consumer as a nation, in my opinion, when we start relying so much on um, foreign nations as we move towards electric vehicles. And uh, 2032, just think that's less than 10 years away. Less than 10 years away. Where were we at nine years ago today? In nine years, we're going to be in a position where we're all going to be driving electric vehicles. I don't know how many households have 100 amp plus services to be able to plug in two cars per home. So it's scary when, when we have a um, the EPA and the National Highway Safety Transportation Administration directing and demanding without talking to consumers of what we're going to be doing. So...
0: Senator Anderson, your thoughts? And any message out of Springfield, because uh, he's right, the, we don't have much time for the electric vehicle implementation.
6: Yeah, and I think... Uh, to Representative Swanson's point, the the grid is uh, the the bigger issue. Um, You know, we can say that the government's going to mandate all these things, but um, when we mandate that and we don't have a way to charge them, especially when we are shutting down nuclear plants, make them harder to stay open, uh, shutting down coal, peaker plants around the state, um, and relying more and more on um, wind and solar... It's, uh, it's not going to work, and, um, Vanessa, I think you said best. I mean, government is a one-legged duck swimming in a circle, and unfortunately we're in a position where that one-legged duck is making policy, and it's, uh, it's going to be bad news. We need to, we need to let uh, consumers uh, pick what they're going to do and uh, let the market drive itself that way, because um, when we have government picking winners and losers and saying you have to do this or you have to do that, it's, it's only going to increase prices. And then you, you get into a position where then government is trying to solve uh, a problem that government created, uh, i.e., uh, the Inflation Reduction Act. So, um, yeah, we just need to get back to where we're letting consumers um, pick what works for them. But then, So this may be before Senator uh,
1: Anderson's time, but if you recall back when, I don't know, it's been three or four years ago, I, I said paint the mental picture of... Uh, you know, in the residential areas of Chicago where there are no garages and people are fighting for a parking place bumper-to-bumper out on the street. So imagine the maze of extension cords that are just running (laughs) everywhere. You won't even be able to walk down the sidewalk. So, I mean, there are unintended consequences for everything we do, and and that maze of extension cords might be problematic.
6: Yeah, Senator Capon, I'm saying that in jest. But I've seen what you're talking about, the
0: bumper-to-bumper, and it's true.
6: Yeah, Senator Chapin-Rose and myself this last year, we did a bill called the U-First bill, um, and it would mandate that uh, every rooftop in Chicago would have to have a solar panel on it before they came to uh, downstate Illinois.
0: Oh, yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. that's
6: right. How
7: far so far that goes.
6: exactly. Yeah,
0: exactly.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's interesting this morning to talk about what Toyota's position was, you know, and that we could get there a lot faster if we did, you know, electric hybrid vehicles and it had much, a much larger impact. And I think we've been talking about that here at this roundtable for a couple of years, and it just seems it's, it's common sense, and, and it's just like it's really frustrating that we can't get there. We get, everybody can't get their heads wrapped around that, you know, and it's just like if, if, if you had true business people um, that were able to sit down together and give advice to the politicians and they would take it, we could solve a lot of these problems pretty fast. That's probably not going to happen. <laughs> Did you see the CEO of Ford
1: got in an F-150 and drove it uh, just to see how it would go? The first place he got, it took him 40 minutes, and he wasn't charged 40%. Yet. He went to another one as was one of these high-charging places, and it was great, but there was one where, I mean, he saw firsthand. He's like, we can't make our people sit here for 40 minutes and not get more than 40% of their vehicle charged. So, you know I'm, wait
0: till a line for him. Right. You know, if you have five people in line.
1: one. just just me driving here to Monmouth and back, you know. I don't mind spending time in Monmouth, but I don't want to spend forty five minutes
7: <laughs> charging
1: when, you know, I can get in and out of there in
6: three minutes. That's
0: okay, they'll put gaming machines in so people can there. play the machines, right? Well not only
6: charging, but I don't know if you saw it two years ago. They took the the new F Ford one fifty Lightning that's supposed to get, you know, three hundred and forty mile range. And they put a trailer on it, which everybody in this room, being in the agriculture industry, you're usually pulling something, right? Mm-hmm. They put a trailer on it, the average uh, weighted trailer, uh, and it got 26 miles. So um, things that uh, government doesn't like to think about, um, uh, you know, when trying to implement stuff on on, uh, on people. We have yeah, that's true. 26 miles from the
4: out,
6: you know, that the visual I like to
4: use is wintertime snow when cars are stranded alongside the road for hours because of an accident twenty miles ahead of them, they sit and sit and sit. It's with a gasoline car, it's okay, but when you have an electric car
8: out on that highway,
4: eventually the battery goes dead, you can't just walk up to it and jump that car with another battery. You've got to charge it up and that can take hours and hours of cars lined up on a highway. But you know?
1: Good. But so, I mean
4: that's the visual I like to the use of cars along a highway. How do you? You can't just dump five gallons of gas in them. Thus, Toyota would be a good plan. Use a hybrid mixture.
1: So, I'm sorry. No, to that to that exact end of your statement, Mr. Halpin said it best this morning. Polarization, and I think that, and this is just my opinion. I don't know if I'm not speaking for anybody but me. But the polarization of the parties and the way people think turns into the polarization of. Uh, the process and then the products and what Chris said, you know, the teamwork of a small gas engine as well as electricity makes perfect sense. You know, you don't make a a board of governors off of all like-minded people because the melting pot is what makes a good average. So the polarization, as you said this morning, Mr. Halpin, it's it's causing us problems, costing money.
0: Right, and like um, Senator Anderson said, let the consumer make the choice, it makes perfect sense to be in Chicago and have an electric vehicle or have a hybrid and switch to electricity, given what you're doing, where you're going. Uh, and it makes sense to, for you know, to around Monmouth. Um, but to go to, you know, family in Iowa or Arkansas or wherever, you, you're going to need to get there quicker. And, and go ahead, Sad, and then Senator Halpin, your thoughts, sir. Just,
1: I just had this. I went to a Corp meeting out at uh, the Beck shed here just uh West of town last night, Paul Gavin shed, and I was taught they had a drone. Uh, they were showing off the drones. One of them could lift 400 pounds and spray 50 acres in one run. But he said that's kind of the end of that generation of technology. He said they really think the next technology is a three-cylinder 90cc gas engine alongside a single battery pack, and they would double the runtime, double the capacity. Mm. But it's the combination of the two mm-hmm.
7: that makes it better. The hybrid. The
3: hybrid. The hybrid. <laughs>
7: yeah,
3: hybrid.
7: Yeah. yeah. But, you know, um, my perspective is it's all about balance. I think there is a general consensus that we need to incorporate these, these new technologies, particularly among the younger generation, including the younger generation of farmers. Um, but we, we can't be so locked into um, an ideology that we have to do everything all at once. And we need to make sure that we're trying to do this at a... Uh, at a, at a measured pace without disrupting uh, the, the market. Um, I'm cer- certainly a supporter of uh, you know, electric vehicles. I know we're, uh, we have these you know, difficult scenarios, but I, you know we've had electric vehicles on the road for a while now. We've had the existing charging network that we have in Illinois, and it's not a huge one, but we're not hearing daily news stories about how folks are getting stuck in, in traffic and having their batteries die. So I think we we need to kind of focus down the middle and figure out what are the real concerns uh, to the industry and how to address those specific problems when we're creating rules. Uh, And we need to make sure that everyone, every stakeholder is in the room and is being listened to when these agencies are making the rules. That's interesting because if the bird that died hitting the windmill
1: would be covered in oil, then you'd have something happen. But when it just dies, when it gets hit by a windmill... Nothing happens. It's interesting how how, uh, how some of that works. But that's the one thing I was going to say too. In Chris, you know, talking about need for planning. In the 1990s, only once did the U.S. plan more than 80 million acres of corn, and it was just barely more. Since 2010, every year it's been at least 88 million acres. Of corn. So, if 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 all these things require changes, then how, how will agriculture change as a result of that? Will only change? Will North Dakota have to change? You know, will, will the Corn Belt have to uh, have a different look? And and farmers don't necessarily go continuous soybeans very much. They may do continuous corn, so but they may not do continuous soybeans. So what does that mean for weed control? What does that mean for infrastructure? You know, that there could be some, some real ramifications here, maybe not tomorrow, but sure. certainly down the road. I used the word strategic when I introduced Rodney Weiser today, and I think that's the part that is lost track of, is a sound strategic move or thanking both
0: Representative Noreen Hammond, please uh, give us your thoughts, and how best do we take this to Springfield to find that ultimate balance or the right way to handle this that's good for Illinoisans?
8: So, uh, Vanessa, as I, as I listen to these conversations and we kind of dance all around it, um, I'm going to go back to the fact that you know, we are here to listen and to learn and what a great opportunity it is for us as legislators. Um, many of our colleagues in Springfield and certainly in Washington don't have the opportunity or don't avail themselves of the opportunity. So, you have folks creating policy and we see it in Springfield on a, on a daily basis when we're there. Um, we have folks creating policy that they read about it somewhere, they think it's a great idea. Oftentimes, California does it, so it must be wonderful. And they really haven't researched it, they haven't talked to the experts and I consider all of the folks um, in this room in the, in the ag industry as, as experts. And and so that therein lies the biggest problem. We're we're creating policy without the knowledge of of what is the long-term effect, how long is it going to take, can we actually sustain it, and, you know, going back to we have the same number of of acreage in, in corn as we have for years and years and years. Well, we can't do all of this without change, and... And where does that change come from? That comes from, I think, an investment in R&D. And we have to do a better job of that as well.
0: And interestingly enough, um, we were able to have Congresswoman Sherry Bustos here a few years ago, and we were having this same discussion. And Rob and, and Ron and numerous other people in the, in the room were able to point out the, the uh, low-octane Remind me of what it was, the next low generation. Low carbon,
7: high octane. Low
0: carbon, high octane, which turned into part of the language that started the Next Generation Fuels Act. Where does that stand?
1: Uh, right now, probably on hold. Okay. But it has been re- reintroduced in both the House and the Senate um, and uh, waiting for an opportunity probably to tag on to something that could give it fair fair notice. So right now, probably on the shelf, waiting for the right opportunity. But certainly, it could fix some of what we've been talking about here by uh, getting us in a better place with uh, ethanol inclusion levels, the ability to make sustainable aviation fuel work, those kind of things. Yeah, I think the Next Generation
5: Fuels Act is Perfectly, where it's sitting right now. Um, We are. We've been talking a lot about cafe standards, tailpipe standards this morning, Um, and we're going to have a bigger debate on that before those before those rules are codified. And one quick aside on those is that the treatment of uh, you know we talk about you know creating rules and, and polarization, but the treatment of electric vehicles in those tailpipe standards is really not honest. It's not a life cycle analysis of the emissions that are that are created from, from an electric vehicle. So they're 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 given a little bit of a, a, a leg up, but back to the original point, we are going to have a broader debate about those standards and whether they're whether they can be effective or even implemented, which I don't believe they can. I mean it's a default mandate for electric vehicles. We we're going to push back on those hard and at some point um, some of the folks in this room are going to ask this ask us, well what's your plan? And that's when the Next Generation Fuels Act um, becomes critically important. We could say um, car manufacturers, um, oil refiners, ethanol producers, and, and a bevy of others are all supportive of this. And, and, and if you really want to decarbonize the transportation industry, this is the route that works. Um, you know, there, there, there are some good things about electrification, but um, ultimately, I don't think battery electric alone can stand on its own. Um, so it, it, it's, it's, I, I, the, the act has been around. I think Sherry Bustos was the creator, one of the original creators. It's got some familiarity, and I think the timing could be right
1: um, soon to interject it into the conversation. Something complete, not completely random, but I, I'm a random kind of guy. <laughs> I know, I know, I got a friend who, who owns a golf course, and he said last year, golf carts, were nine hundred dollars, is a little steep, but he's getting to the point, And sometimes those golf carts tend to disappear, wind up on a trailer, and go down somewhere. Next thing you know, you're five fewer than you used to have. So he's like, I need to, I need to buy some more carts, and or they, get so some
0: cameras.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so he calls, and they said, Well, this year they're eighty two hundred dollars. I mean, so we get a whole spike man you know, just inflation deal. Uh, but but he also said nobody because Everyone wants the gas-powered carts, so there's a shortage, there's a higher demand for them. Nobody wants the electric ones. No one wants to have a facility. No one wants to have to put them under one spot. No one wants to build another thing and go through all that cost to, to do so and then pass it along to the customers and higher rates and higher rentals. It's, it, it, it's one of those where it, it shows what the marketplace wants to do and the challenges then that, that can come from that, but it, it's it's... You know, the marketplace dictates this as opposed to something else or an ideology dictating it. it, it it's, it's remarkable how things can, can uh, react as a result of that.
0: In our legislature uh, in, in Springfield, it, I believe the Illinois Information Service had a release that new housing at some point, all new housing would have to contain, <laughs> excuse me, the ability to have electric chargers. Is that correct?
7: Yes, what we passed was a requirement that there, there be conduit. It, I think the term is electrical ready, or not, not capable, but ready, meaning that you'd have to at least have the conduit out to an area where it would be uh, serviceable for an you know, electrician later on to come in and install the charging. So charging station and wiring is not required, but just conduit from the panel to wherever okay. it needs to go.
0: And most of the new housing is happening in the suburbs?
7: I, I think that's probably true. Because we I struggle in our
0: municipalities to get, to get new housing, which we desperately need, but um, it tends to go up there.
7: I think that's probably true okay. so statewide, but, I mean, we're seeing, um, we're trying to see some growth down state as well. But I think the bulk of it is in the suburbs right now.
0: Okay. So sustainable aviation fuels. Anything else? First of all, I should ask this. Um, how does it work? I've never thought about airplanes using ethanol, how much ethanol or biodiesel? What's the mix? What are we talking about? Ten percent, fifteen? What's it look like? One
5: hundred percent. It's a drop-in. Um, wow. Yeah, it's it's, and I'm not a chemist, <laughs> so, uh, but whether it's alcohol to jet, um, or or soybean oil heffas to jet, it's um, you know Fisher-Trope processes, and and there, there's definitely some high-level chemistry that goes on, but but the final, the final chemistry of it is essentially the same as as your, your Jet A or your kerosene.
0: Okay. Yeah. Anybody it, using it, it right it's now? It's using
5: that as
1: a feedstock to give it to kerosene.
5: Yeah, you okay. use the alcohol and then you take it through or the soybean oil or the waste cooking oil or the municipal solid waste, whatever your flavor is, and you convert it chemically in, into a fuel that's essentially the same.
0: And the cleaner burning air as a result uh, is what happened, or cleaner burning fuel? leads to cleaner air?
5: It, it leads to a lower carbon fuel. Okay. Is what essentially, it, it essentially is the end goal. Um,
0: the, the reason I ask is the American Long Association pretty much supports Illinois corn, Illinois soybean uh, with this these concepts.
1: So yeah. cleaner burning fuel, however, in order to be eligible to be used that way, to his point earlier, some of these other things that lower the carbon intensity of that fuel on the front end before it ever gets used is part of the process, right? Go ahead, Yes, I'm absolutely. am saying that and that's And that's, that's,
5: that's the reason for all of this is, is a feedstock, alcohol or ethanol, is actually a feedstock in this situation to sustainable aviation fuel, much like corn is a feedstock to ethanol. But they want that low carbon feedstock, much like we, we ultimately are going to want low carbon corn as our feedstock.
0: Okay. Pardon. Ag listeners, and, and I want to be able to explain that to my brother in the airline industry uh, from an agricultural perspective, and i tried to explain how some of this works. So I just tell them to listen. Easy, squeezy. <laughs> all right, Dan, one uh, last thing. Representative Dan Swanson, how do our oil uh, friends, our colleagues in the oil industry, how do they feel about all this?
4: Well, it's, remember, we're going to be, if we go to a truly non-fossil energy world, um, they're certainly trying to fight to strive on their own also but I think they're being partners as I read through some of the literature they're trying to be partners they're not forgotten too. they want to have a seat at the table but you know, I really can't speak for them much but uh, um, I think they've been partners all along on this adventure okay Right? so in, in that vein Within the last 18 months, Chevron Oil purchased Renewable Energy Group, which is a biodiesel manufacturer. So it appears that Chevron, an oil producing company, sees the benefit of being involved in biofuels. And I think that's, to me, that's just the start of a trend that will happen, continue
0: to go that way. Okay. Good to know. All right. With us as well, uh, before we take a break, is uh, from our FSA. United, we have Hannah Lair and Rachel Leary, and from Mammoth Roseville, Logan Corsett. They're going to ask questions toward the end of this, uh, this program. We're very, very glad to have our FFA students here to learn as well. We'll take our break, our one and only break. It's a 10-minute break. It's 11.02. You're listening to the FS Ag Roundtable on WRAM Monmouth, Illinois.